0: Must be 21 years or older to enjoy Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado, and as always, celebrate responsibly.
1: Your business may be small, but you've got big goals. Brother Laser Printers can help you succeed, no matter the space, task, or budget. From crisp black and white to vivid full color, our printers offer affordable quality you can trust. Plus, fast printing and high page yields make them ideal for home offices and shared workspaces. It's no wonder Brother is the number one retail brand in laser printer unit sales in the U.S. With Brother at your side, go from small to do it all. Shop now at brother-usa.com laser.
0: From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of September 14th, 2020. Well, folks, we are down to the final two weeks of the 2020 regular season. The Chicago White Sox took care of business again, sweeping Detroit over the weekend and thanks to some outside help with a record of 30 and 16 the Chicago White Sox have the best record in the American League yes you heard that right the Chicago White Sox have the best record in the American League which sets up this week's mega series against the Minnesota Twins. The Twins, who are 4-2 against the White Sox this season and 14-6 against teams above 500, just swept the Cleveland Indians at home, and they are still a game behind the White Sox in the American League Central standings. We'll preview this crucial series for the White Sox and discuss what the keys are for them to at least split the four games against Minnesota. At the end of the show, we'll answer your questions in P.O. Sox. First, let's discuss how the White Sox got to be in the driver's seat in the American League as they swept the Detroit Tigers. And joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and co-host of the podcast. It's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. The White Sox took care of business again against the Tigers. Mm-hmm. And they finished 21-3. and Against the Tigers, Royals, and Pirates in 2020. I don't remember a White Sox team so thoroughly beating up the teams they should on their schedule like we have witnessed this season.
2: Yeah, not multiple teams. You know, sometimes they would, uh, you know, give one particular team help to, I guess, align the standings in such a way that, uh, their performance basically matches what the the quality opponent against them is really something and it's a it's a bizarre set of circumstances that uh the white Sox could have more than half their wins against two opponents in a whole season uh, i trying to think what that would equate to like i'm trying to think if it was, it was if it's uh let me think probably be about like a 70 win season if you dominated two teams and then had less than uh, you know, I, I guess if you, if you had less wins against uh, every other team in the league besides the, the two teams you beat up on, I think it would be about 70 wins. <laughs> so I think that's a... Uh, and, and that season you'd finish like in fourth place in the mm-hmm. division in a season like this. Uh, you could win the whole uh, league.
0: Yeah, the White Sox could, again, still in terrific position to win the American League Central. And again, they are, as you wake up on Monday... Uh, On September 14th, the Chicago White Sox are the number one seed. Uh, They're a half game ahead of the Tampa Bay Rays, who have been struggling against the Boston Red Sox. Credit to the Boston Red Sox, though. They are starting to play better baseball. And the uh, Oakland Athletics had their difficulties against the Texas Rangers, and they got devastating news over the weekend. Uh, Just one of the best third basemen in all of Major League Baseball, Matt Chapman for the Oakland Athletics, had to have hip surgery. And he is out for the rest of the season. That is a huge blow to Oakland. And uh, not only does that help the White Sox chances of being or having the best record in the American League, it could help them in the postseason as well. So things are continuing to line up in the White Sox favor as we uh, inch closer to the postseason in the final two weeks of the regular season. But let's recap what happened over the weekend as the Chicago White Sox swept the Detroit Tigers. And in game one, Lucas Giolito had to start. He racked up a lot of strikeouts. He looked sharp early, but then he didn't have his best stuff. And he got into trouble in the sixth inning when his pitch count really skyrocketed. Uh, and he ended up giving up three runs. As a matter of fact, Detroit was up three to nothing as Giolito exited the game. Because Casey Mize, the 2018 number one overall pick, had a no-hitter going through five innings until the White Sox put up four runs thanks to an Aloy Jimenez three-run homer that still to this day, Jim, I have no idea how he hit out as it was way above the strike zone. But with his mighty strength, he was able to get it over the left field wall and the White Sox ended up winning game one to four to three. In game two, the return of Ronaldo Lopez, which we'll talk about him in a second, uh, he threw five scoreless innings. Jose Abreu had a monster game two home runs, seven RBIs as the White Sox won 14 to nothing. And in game three, we saw the MOB debut of Jonathan Stever and Aloy Jimenez again hit another big home run as the White Sox won 5 to 2 to complete the sweep. Let's start with Ronaldo Lopez and his return. We didn't quite know on what to expect from Lopez. He has not been good for a while, Jim, and we know that they're not working on a great deal, and they're not—they don't have enough people to play full games in Schaumburg, so it's—it's it's hazy to know what Lopez was exactly working on in Schaumburg. But he came back, game two, made the start. It appeared the strategy was no matter what, live in the strike zone. If the Tigers hit it, they hit it. He threw 75 pitches, Jim, 47 strikes, but in his five innings, he only allowed three hits, didn't allow a run, walked one and struck out two for the final two weeks of the season. I think this works for the White Sox if Lopez continues this method. What did you think about that start? And is that sustainable for these last two weeks?
2: I don't think so, or at least, um, yeah, I think it can vary greatly from start to start. I think it worked for the Tigers. I think same thing with Jonathan Stevers, not to spoil what I'm thinking about him, but just, you know, the the first inning where he couldn't find the strike zone, he got behind in the count, he had to come to the zone with the fastball, really just didn't have any command of any of his pitches. And, you know, by the uh, second, third, fourth innings where he got past the jitters and started setting up counts in his favor— Tigers didn't look like much. Uh, Tigers only really gave him hell when uh, he was missing the strike zone by quite a bit. Uh, I'm thinking about Lucas Giolito in the first game where, you know, they I think they put up their best fight against Giolito. They just fouled off awful lot of pitches. He wasn't great with the slider, so his slider wasn't really, uh, they could eliminate that from their thought process. Changeup wasn't as good as we've seen it, so it was like a, a rockier Giolito, but even then, you know, they just had to tire him out before they got to him. With Lopez, it seemed like, you know, he allowed them to take their best cuts, um, you know, he I think he had some life on his fastball. I think the slider command was good and allowed him to throw it in fastball counts. You know, it's not a devastating slider, but he located it well, was able to steal strikes with it, and that's something that's not always there for him, so that's a point in his favor. But it just seemed like he had some pitches, a number of pitches, where the Tigers were able to take like good, comfortable hacks at it, but just either barrel the bat, got under it, hit in the ground, like the best contact was really you know grounders. Um, some of that's pitch location but otherwise just you know maybe lesser hitters not being um, you know able to punish mistakes the way a good lineup like the twins can so that's what made me think that this is uh yeah i would say it's good for lopez just because when you're facing the tigers and you're having a bad season you shouldn't be shying away from them i think the success is in the strike zone and you let them uh tell you otherwise and and uh they really didn't do that for either lopez or stever but i think against better teams you're going to see limitations for that strategy.
0: Sure. I just think that his next start is against the Cincinnati Reds and the Reds are unpredictable. One night they could put up 14 on you. Mm-hmm. The next night there's just nothing, nothing offensively from the Cincinnati Reds. They are, they have been a very frustrating team to to monitor uh, in 2020. There is a series against Cleveland in Cleveland and there could be a lot of writing for the White Sox if the franchise is still focused on winning the American League Central in 2020. Uh, if the expectations internally, especially within the clubhouse, if they want to win the division, you might have Lopez make one of those starts or you hold off and you have him start one of the games against the Chicago Cubs while Lucas Giolito skips that final weekend. So he's lined up for game one. So I think in these last couple of weeks, there could be the opportunity, Jim, that Lopez picks up two more starts. And for me, if he gets blown up, he gets blown up. Mm -hmm. And I think it's still worthwhile though. Uh, We talked about it. Sox machine live. Uh, If you didn't listen to the last uh, or the previous podcast episode, you know, the Jordan Yamamoto treatment uh, that if he allows seven runs in five innings, okay. You know, the white Sox are in a position to make the postseason. They just need someone to eat up five innings. So it doesn't tax out the bullpen. So at least the bullpen is healthy. Uh, rested and ready to go like they very much are for this upcoming series against the Minnesota Twins. You don't want that to happen in Cincinnati, where you got to have the bullpen take on 60% of the workload, and then you got to travel to Cleveland for a four-game series. Uh, I, I would much rather that Lopez be the sacrificial lamb uh, in those situations, and I'm okay if this is his strategy of, I'm just going to throw in the strike zone and they hit it, they hit it.
2: Yeah, he had a bit more life on his stuff than previous starts. I think he hit 97 when he was topping out at 96. So the max velocity was there. A bit more life on the fastball. So I think, uh, at least I hope, that he thought he had enough on his uh, primary pitches in order to have the confidence to challenge pitchers to fill up the strike zone, or challenge hitters I should say. Uh, especially against lesser offenses. I think like Cleveland might be a bad matchup for him just because of their heavy lefty lineup, especially when they have you know, Lindor, Ramirez, Santana all stacked up against them. That gives them a hard time. But yeah, against the Reds, you know, if he can just fill up the strike zone with that kind of stuff that he had and see what it does, I think that's a lot more useful than him nibbling and not really telling us whether it's just uh the command doing it or if it's just he uh the shoulder injury has sapped the the highest end of his stuff and he's not somebody you can operate with uh with less than his best stuff i think when he struggles sometimes he struggles in a way that nobody can really learn anything and i think that's the most frustrating thing of all
0: so let's move over to the major league debut then for jonathan stever the fifth round pick in the 2018 major league baseball draft for the white Sox out of indiana university so for the hoosiers that are listening to this podcast right now you have one of your own That's with the White Sox. Uh, He's never pitched higher than high A with Winston-Salem, Jim. And on Sunday was the first time he pitched with a full defense since last year. Uh, So some insight of what's going on in Schaumburg. Stever's been pitching, but he doesn't have a full defense behind him as he's facing hitters. Uh, The first inning was Rocky. He threw 36 pitches, which accumulated two walks, two singles, a run scored, and he ended the frame with his first career strikeout against Daz Cameron. But after the first inning, Jim, pretty smooth sailing. The second inning, 1-2-3, only on 12 pitches in a strikeout. Third inning was better on 10 pitches, a 1-2-3 inning with the strikeout. And the fourth inning, uh, he didn't allow a hit or a walk. He got two more outs, but he had a a tough nine-pitch battle with Jorge Badafacio. And Rick Renteria decided that was enough for Stever, in his final line, was three and two thirds innings pitched, two hits allowed, one earned run, two walks, and three strikeouts. What did you think of Stever's major league debut?
2: It was good enough, especially you know, as you mentioned, the background between you know, I, I guess it's like a two front war between not a whole lot of uh, upper level experience or experience against upper level hitters and uh, and any kind of environment before. Uh, this season, and then also the irregular training experience during the season. that's you know, if he throws three and two thirds innings, innings, gives up one run, no matter how he does it, cool. Uh, I think you know, from the second inning on, I think that's kind of how I'm going to judge him. You know, if he can kind of set aside the first inning for jitters and the four minute review and all that. I was, I guess, surprised by the fastball not being. You know, I, I he maxed out at ninety four point two. I thought he might be able to get to ninety six. So. That was a little, um, you know, underwhelming. But at the same time, they didn't really damage the fastball. He threw with more confidence with each inning and... uh, and the tigers didn't punish him so it looked like you know he's got a bit of fastball hop or you know carry to it that allows him, you know like a 92 93 mile per hour fastball to play up so that's good and then the curveball i think he had a hard time you know getting the uh, release point right on that kind of fired one overhead bounced it a, a couple times <laughs> only got two whiffs you know it wasn't his best curveball that we've seen in the winston-salem highlight reel so i guess the good news is that you know he. He was effective enough when it comes to run prevention, and it seems like we know, you know, based on what we've seen from uh, high A-ball at least, that he can do better.
0: I thought this was a good opportunity, though, because he hasn't pitched almost in a calendar Mm -hmm. year in a game. And, you know, Rick Hahn, this is a gutsy move, but I like it. Why not? If it's going to be a bullpen day anyways, let's give the kid a shot. And uh, I, I thought he did well. I was expecting a little bit more velocity. Mm-hmm. Uh, he mostly sat between 92 to 94. I don't know if he's going to make another appearance for the White Sox the rest of the season. This might be his only appearance, and, and I would be okay with it if they wanted to bring back Alex McRae, because uh, I thought McRae pitched pretty well in, in you know, mop-up duty. And there may be another opportunity for that. I was kind of rooting for him to get the save. Yeah. The <laughs> yep. win. Me too. I love the three inning save.
2: <laughs> Big yeah. fan.
0: Uh, I was hoping he's going to get that, but Bernardo Flores got that uh, ninth inning. Uh, but yeah, so this is the only time we see Stever. This is, a, this is a nice sample of what he can do. And it kind of builds on some excitement. Uh, going to 2021. I, I just don't know when there would be another opportunity unless, again, if he does travel with the team, uh, maybe he'll make another start in Cincinnati and the White Sox push him again and, and see and see how far he can go.
2: Yeah, the one thing I don't know about the season, and I wrote about this uh, before Stevers start on Sunday morning, is that When it comes to options this year, I don't know exactly how that's going to play out. I know for like a normal player who was already on the 40-man roster, it's an option. So, you know, guys getting sent down and back up like a Zach Collins, you know, that's that's an option. But when it comes to guys who weren't on the 40-man before the season, they get added, they make an appearance, they go back down to Schaumburg this late in the year. Uh, I'm not sure how that counts in terms of uh, service time they've accumulated during a minor league season and whether that's considered, you know, the work beforehand, if that's considered a minor league season or not. Because uh, he could get a fourth option. I think that's the only thing complicating things. Service time, I think for a pitcher of Stever's cal- uh, caliber, doesn't really matter. I think uh, the White Sox don't guard service time and years of control as jealously as they do for uh, position players, just because pitchers can have you know more things go wrong for them, uh, so that you really want to take more advantage of their, you know their their early twenties in order to get the the most on their, uh, you know when their arm is theoretically the strongest. Although guys make gains later this year because of training. Um, but, uh, when it comes to like future seasons, I think it would be ideal if the White Sox had, you know, uh, three options to have two, just because if there is an injury, although sometimes they can add a fourth option anyway, you know, just complicates matters. Like we saw, like Luis Basabe, that he got in this no man's land where he's not going to have enough time to develop, but might be interesting enough to where they lose him, So they try to sneak him through waivers. I think ideally the White Sox would like to have three options after this year, just to, uh, ensure themselves against you know, some kind of uh slower development track for him. But that's, I think a more minor concern just because, uh, yeah, I think based on what he showed last year, what he showed in this appearance that he should be able to make it to the majors and stick in some feasible way within, you know, a couple seasons.
0: So that's the pitching front for the white Sox. So It was nice to see, even, even though it's against the Detroit tigers, it's nice to see that Lopez pitched well, Stever pitched well, and in those two games that we were kind of worried about on how the White Sox were going to cover them after Lucas Giolito, the White Sox as a team only gave up two runs over the final 18 innings against the Detroit Tigers. So great job by the entire White Sox pitching staff. Moving over to the offense and something that uh, caught my attention. Prior to Game 3, hitting coach Frank Manichino uh, had his Zoom conference speaking to the media And he was asked about Aloy Jimenez and Frank Menachino said, I told Aloy he's a 340 hitter, anything less, and he should be ashamed of himself. He should hold himself to that high standard, end quote. Well, Aloy had a big series. He was seven for 12 with two home runs and seven RBIs against Detroit. But Jim, back to Frank Menachino's comments. Is Aloy Jimenez a 340 type of hitter? Are those actually realistic expectations for him?
2: Maybe. You know, it's, you know, when you watch Tim Anderson make a jump like he made, when you see what, uh, you know, Jose Abreu is doing uh, later in his career, you think, like, okay, it's not completely out of the question. I mean, like, you know, to compare him to those hitters, you know, they all have big hitting zones and they all have different swings and they all have power. Uh, and, and can hit the ball authoritatively to all fields, uh, you know, maybe Eloy is a bit easier to shift on the ground, whereas, you know, the uh, you know Anderson and uh, Abreu have those inside-out swings that can poke a ball through the right side if needed, so maybe that hampers him a little bit, and he doesn't have Anderson's speed to beat out infield singles, but uh, just when you look at the way he can cover the zone, the way he can punish all pitches, the way he... Uh, can uh, apparently hammer fastballs at his shoulders over the left field wall and get on top of 96, 97. That's high, you know. Usually, uh, if like we saw him earlier in the season, you know, with higher heat at a higher uh, location, you know, um, you know, like stomach high or above, you he'd know, kind of fend those off to the right side, and sometimes he'd poke it out to right field, and uh, he had a very opposite field oriented home run chart early on, but now you're seeing them pull the ball. And I think that's when he becomes the monster. That's when he's more than just a, uh, just a really strong hitter who can, uh, you know, has opposite, opposite field strength. A uh, few do because like Dian Viciato was kind of the same way, Av- Avi Garcia was the same way. They were both like 240 hitters that uh, never, you know, yeah, Avi was a bit better, but like early on Avi was uh, you had some of a uh, uh, low average problem and low OBP problem because of that. He eventually you know, was able to hone it a little bit. But now that you're seeing him pull the ball in the air, you know, pull it down the line, uh, you know, hoist it out to left center when it's high, I think he's got the swing back. So it's not unrealistic. And I think, you know, given his natural hitting abilities and the way that it was just so easy for him in the minors, that it probably makes sense for a guy like Medecino who. I think uh, likes to complain. <laughs> you know, that's kind of his personality. He likes to be a bit of a hard ass and uh, and never be pleased. I think it makes sense for him to set a high bar that might sound unattainable, but also makes it seem like uh, that you know it is attainable. You know, it, I don't think it's. I think it's a good number just because it's probably a little bit out of his reach, but close enough to where you know, in a lucky season and a good season where everything's going for him, that he can maybe do it.
0: Yeah, looking at Aloy Jimenez's stat cast numbers, his exit velocity has increased on the average exit velocity of the balls that he puts in play from his rookie season. In his rookie year, he averaged at 91.2 miles per hour. He's close to 93 miles per hour with his average exit velocity Hard hit rate, so this is the number of batted balls in play that have an exit velocity of greater than 95 miles per hour. His rookie season, he was at 47.9%. In 2020, Aloy Jimenez is at 57.5%. That is a huge increase as far as in that regard. But the one area, and I guess this is kind of where I understand where Frank Minichino is coming from, Jim. Is the ground ball rate for Aloy Jimenez in his rookie year? He was at forty-seven point six percent with the amount of ground balls that he hit in two thousand twenty. That is now fifty-three and a half percent. For someone that hits the ball as hard as Aloy Jimenez does, he has to put the ball in air, and that's why if you follow me on Twitter at SoxMachine underscore Josh, when he comes up with bat with runners in scoring position, you will see me tweet ball in air. And that's what he needs to focus on. His line drive rate has increased, but his fly ball rate has decreased by 9%. And it seems to be fed to his ground ball rate. And you get hit the ball 95 miles per hour on the ground, it's often going to end up being an out because teams are doing such a much better job this season, Jim. Shifting, especially against Aloy Jimenez. I just, until he starts hitting more fly balls and more line drives, and he cuts that ground ball rate below 45%, I don't think he could be a 340 hitter.
2: Well, I'll counter that by saying he's also cut his strikeout rate by 3%. So, you know, perhaps this is some product of him putting more balls in play than he has before, and now he's just going, you know, it's just more of a matter of just how to convert balls he's putting the wood on into more productive contact. So, you know, I think I was more worried last year when he had the, you know, early rookie struggles, uh, especially like the first two months and the strikeout rate was 30%. And just for a guy who struck out, you know, maybe like 15% in 2018, something in that range. And just, you know, the contact was really what made him special to see that contact ability disappear on him was a little bit worrisome, but to see that number rounding down, you know, you know, getting below 25% now, hopefully gets down more towards 20% the way Tim Anderson has that, uh, I, I can see it being a work in progress still, but I like where that progress is going in that front. So I, I think it's partially some of his contact is worse, but I think more contact ultimately is a better sign. And I, I think that's sign that uh, he can eventually make more of his contact stand out.
0: Yeah. And he's had 13 home runs this year. He's currently tied for 10th uh, as Nelson Cruz, Mike Trout, Luke Voigt currently lead the major leagues with 16 home runs. Jose Breu has 15 home runs and you know, the 340, I, I just hope fans don't hold Eloy Jimenez to that regard. Uh, I, I I just I disagree with Frank Medicino. I think that's a high bar. To say, you know, Eloy could be a 310 hitter, absolutely. He's currently hitting 301 right now. And uh, if Eloy Jimenez does figure out on how to, you know, what balls that he can consistently drive and put them in the air uh, as far as hitting line drives and fly balls and not beat the ball into the ground. He's he's going to be a monster. He's going to be someone that could easily hit fifty plus home runs. He might be the guy that hits sixty home runs again in in the majors if he stays healthy. I, I don't think it's that crazy, but I just when I read three forty, I, I thought to myself, ah, eh, that that's a bit crazy. But you think it's a yeah. it's not that a uh, it's not that crazy.
2: Well, I I think it's a goal worth setting for somebody like Eloy who is special and has always been special, and uh, yeah, in has the possibility for more because he mentioned like the ground ball rate and you know in and thinking about a power hitter who hits the ball hard with a ground ball rate uh that high like over 50 percent, kind of reminded me of the discussion around nomar mazara from 2018 to 2019 with the rangers and the swing changes he was trying to make and how he had the power to hit a 505 foot homer off lopez but you know never Hit more than 20 a season in fact he could only hit 20 a season 20, 20 2019 where his home run totals for in his four years with the rangers but you know it, with eloi you mentioned that you know his home run total i think what's what's that pace for he mentioned like 50 homers so, you know 50 60 with a ground ball rate that high i think that points to how special he is so i i think it's worth saying you know even if he's hitting 301 and even if he's you know hitting 15 homers and and has a six game extra base hit streak you can point to one of his numbers and say like, "Hey, there's still something better you can do." You <laughs> don't 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 let up because uh, you know, you might be an all-star this year, but you might be an MVP candidate next year, and you might be a Hall of Famer at the end of the, the line. You know, it's it all sounds high when you're setting the goal, but I, I think setting a high goal for a hitter with his talents is kind of the idea.
0: Yeah, uh, Eloy Jimenez is currently on a 46 home run pace. Where Jose Abreu is uh is on a pace to hit 50 plus home runs over a 162-game season. That's how well Jose Abreu has been playing uh, this season. Yeah. Uh, another quote from Frank Medichino. This is about Nomar Mazzara because he was asked why. We haven't seen a home run from Nomar Mazzara. And quote from Fra- this is from Frank Medichino, the White Sox hitting coach. Uh, quote, I haven't figured that out. He's in between mechanics sometimes. He's in between approach sometimes. There's got to be some kind of pressing going on there. So, you know, to really pinpoint it, I can't. End quote. <laughs> Thank you for the insight, coach.
2: Yeah, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I, I appreciate his bluntness. Now, he was a good quote when he was in Charlotte, and he a good quote now. But, yeah, Mazzara seems like he's trying to rip the ball inside, but he doesn't know what he's looking for exactly, and he just ends up swinging a lot of pitches that are, like, inside the batter's box. So, uh, yeah, he just seems like he's caught in between, and, and I think pressing as unsatisfying as that answer is is a big part of it. Because sometimes, you know, he pokes the ball to left center like he had that double that was pretty big and and you know he 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 sometimes uh, hits how he's being pitched and uh you know he looks okay you know looks like that's a useful swing you know, if he can do that to the opposite field and drive the ball to the right he'll be in business but he can't find that driving the ball to the right side swing like uh it just ends up like you know, following the ball off spinning around in the batter's box like the seems like the balance isn't there yet or Uh, just the, the barrel isn't getting where he wants it to, because even when they do throw him like a hittable slider down and in where he's looking for it, he can't uh, get in the air. He can't get in the air in fair territory. So it seems like something is hindering him mechanically or something to where that swing isn't easy for him.
0: And again, back to Abreu, Abreu had eight RBIs this weekend, and now he currently leads the majors with 48 RBIs, which is great for me financially. So keep it up, Jose uh, right now, breu has got five more than Atlanta's Freddie Freeman and Marcel Azuna. Both of them have 43 RBIs.
2: Was that bet AL lead or MLB? MLB
0: to lead okay. the major leagues in RBIs. I got 40 to 1 odds, and I put $5 on Jose Breu, which means that pays out $200 if Jose Breu leads the majors in the RBI total. And I made that bet after I did the column on Sox Machine Gym, looking at sixty-game sample sizes to get an idea of what the what kind of numbers we could see. And uh, yeah, when Abreu had fifty RBIs in the same time frame last year, I thought fifty he could do fifty again, and that gets him in the running And forty-one odds. Yeah, that's worth five bucks. Well, he's got yeah. forty-eight through forty-six games. <laughs> The
2: amazing thing about their record, uh, 191, is just like he'd still be well below the record. Oh, yeah. I I don't know what it would be like to watch 191 or 192 RBIs in real time.
0: Well, well right now, Jose Breu's on a 50 home run, 169 RBI pace over a 162-game season.
2: Yeah, that's like 97 course yeah. field.
0: <laughs> that's insane. That's that's like Juan Gonzalez when he had a 100 RBIs at the All-Star game type of pace. Be like, "Well, I'm done for the season." Uh but no, uh, Abreu has been on a tear and now he has a comfortable lead on the RBI front of the major leagues. But the White Sox will need Abreu and Jimenez and the American League best offense to continue hitting this week as they begin their most important series as a franchise. In eight years, as the Minnesota Twins come visiting, we're going to preview that series next on the Sox Machine Podcast after a word from our sponsors.
1: Your business may be small, but you've got big goals. Brother Laser Printers can help you succeed, no matter the space, task, or budget. From crisp black and white to vivid full color, our printers offer affordable quality you can trust. Plus, fast printing and high page yields make them ideal for home offices and shared workspaces. It's no wonder Brother is the number one retail brand in laser printer unit sales in the U.S. With Brother at your side, go from small to do it all. Shop now at brother-usa.com laser. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply.
0: Now we preview what is the biggest series for the Chicago White Sox since 2012, the last time they were in a race to win the American League Central in September. Even though there is a four-game series next week in Cleveland, as the White Sox would face the Indians for the final time in 2020, the White Sox are four and a half games ahead of the Indians currently. That's a sizable gap. And the Indians have a two-game series against the Chicago Cubs, which Alec Mills just threw a no-hitter against the Milwaukee Brewers. And it seems that the Cubs are starting to wake up a little bit. Uh, before they play a four-game series against the Detroit Tigers next weekend while the White Sox are playing the Cincinnati Reds. By the time they play that series in Cleveland, the White Sox should still be ahead of Cleveland and have that gap. So if you, as a fan, want the White Sox to win the American League Central this season, these four games are where the White Sox have to stand their ground against the Twins. Before we get into the pitching probables for this series, Jim, this is a big test for the White Sox. We saw what happened last time these two teams played in Minneapolis. Sloppy defense, lack of offense in games two and three cost the Sox that series. What are you expecting from the White Sox this week? Well, I
2: think you hit the head on the uh, the first one, which is just better defense, like <laughs> resembling a major league team. The The uh, I'm not sure if it was pressure or just, you know, happened to be a bad game because they looked that bad against the Pirates in a certain way, just uh, not challenging them. So uh, I think they're allowed a bad game once in a while. And so that just might've been the bad game of that week against Minnesota. But yeah, just for, I think their self-respect and self-esteem and fan dialogue, it would serve them well to at least play defense better. Otherwise, you know, just, I think the uh, usual things like hoping Dane dunning uh, you know gets his first real big test uh, that'll be a fascinating one um you know he can be forgiven if he stumbles but I think also the white sox here you know, would be well served by him showing up Giolito, you know hopefully uh you know, having some stumbles against a lesser opponent in order to sharpen up against a better one that'd be cool and then we'll see what happens with uh, Dallas Keuchel, you know if their pitching can be lined up I think this is kind of the idea for you know it, it might be like a preview for october uh you know having uh dunning and cease against a, a you know like a, a very good opponent very good offense figuring out which one of them looks better uh which one's a better bet for them to start if they need to start and then you know gilito and keichel you know being one two if all assuming keichel's ready to pitch i think uh we're going to see what the starting pitching is made of and what they're going to need to do better in order to uh you know maybe advance past the first round
0: and let's take a look at that pitching probables for this series Again, starting on Monday, September 14th, this is a 7.10 p.m. Central Time start. It is Jose Breos for the Minnesota Twins against Dylan Cease for the White Sox. Breos against the White Sox in 2020 has faced him twice. The first time was on opening day, and Breos did not look good, along with Lucas Gilito. Breos' final numbers for that game was four innings pitched, seven hits allowed, five earned runs, including that big home run to Yuan Bacotta while only racking up one walk and one strikeout. In his second start, which was the third game in Minneapolis, in which the Twins just blew out the White Sox 8-1, to Brios was sharp. He pitched six innings, only allowed three hits, one earned run, walking two, and struck out eight. So that's a typical Jose Brios start against the White Sox. Brios has n- didn't start 2020 very well. In his last start against the Cardinals, he only lasted five innings, allowing four hits, three earned runs, another home run, and he walked two, but he struck out eight. And this is something I've been noticing with Breus in his most recent starts, Jim. The swing and miss is coming back. He's starting to rack up those strikeout totals that we expect to see from him. What do we need to watch for from White Sox hitters to know if they can score off Breus like they did on opening day?
2: Well, you know, patience will be the key, and I think that's why um, you know when you have uh, James McCann, who had a, a rich history of producing against Brios before the season, and and then you know Grandal gets to start behind the plate. I think that's part of the reason is you know left-handed bats who can make him throw pitches, and I think that's generally the idea. I think having Juan Mancada, who's been looking better, you know, knock on wood, that he's you know they can keep this uh, level of energy up and and the kind of fight he's showing at the plate up with the exit velocity, you know. Swings to both the right center gap and you know the inside out to the left field. He seems like he's getting his hands in hitting position where he wants to, and and the exit velocity is ticking up. So, having him and Grandel in the lineup, you know, to balance out a bit and and protect uh, the lineup against you know him having that uh, big hammer curveball that he just tormented uh, the White Sox with the last time he was out. I think is. Taking that pitch away or at least making uh, Brios have to throw it better or uh, you have maybe eliminating it against left-handed hitters who can do damage and other things, I think is the big idea or at least making him strike out so many batters with so many pitches that he only lasts five.
0: And speaking of lasting five innings, Dylan Cease. We've spent a lot of time discussing the ERA and FIP differences for Cease, Worry that at any moment Cease is going to implode but Cease hasn't allowed more than four earned runs in any of his starts in 2020, and that amount was allowed in his first start of the season against Cleveland. Since then, Cease has held opponents to three earned runs or fewer in each of his starts, but he's only covering on average five innings. So, Jim, this is a pretty big task for Dylan Cease. The White Sox, if he can pitch like he did against the Chicago Cubs and Wrigley, they're going to they're take that, especially against Jose Perez. Do you think Cease is ready for the challenge? He
2: should be. I mean, he's got the stuff. We know he has the stuff. And we've seen him, you know, uh, with the slider. slider's been getting a little bit better. The fastball command's not as, you know, it's getting better. I I think uh, with Cease, it's almost like binary with his fastball command. It's either usable or not. Uh, It hasn't been really precise yet. He hasn't really uh, painted uh, the zone like he did with, uh, you know, that one start that he had during spring training that that was kind of a tease in retrospect but uh at least it's nice to know they can do it but really it's just a matter of whether his fastball is actually useful like that what whether it makes him think uh sometimes it doesn't sometimes it does but uh yeah i think there's more to it and yeah i think the one thing i don't yeah that that makes me a bit nervous is just like a start against the pirates which was okay you know didn't walk anybody through strikes but the swinging strikes are always just lacking, and I think, you know, an offense like the Twins, especially Josh Donaldson, is starting to heat it up now, being a bit deeper and, and more dangerous, uh, especially, you know, when, when Donaldson bats towards the, the top half of the lineup, that uh, just throwing strikes isn't usually uh, enough to make the Twins really sweat. So that's, I think, what makes me nervous about a C-start uh, that his, like we talked about with Lopez, like throwing strikes and filling the zone can work against some teams, but I'm not sure it does against this particular opponent.
0: So after the Monday game, Tuesday, September 15th at 7.10 p.m. Central Time for the Twins, it's going to be Randy Dobnick against the White Sox Dane Dunning. We talked about Dunning and this opportunity that he'll have to face a team like the Minnesota Twins. It is only in his fifth major league start. It is a huge test for Dane Dunning, and hopefully he can hold his own. Dobnik did face the White Sox earlier this season. He pitched the second game of the season, and uh, he pitched pretty well. He threw four innings, allowed three hits, one earned run, two walks, and three strikeouts. After he left, the floodgates opened for the White Sox as they went on to win 10-3. If you remember, Lurie Garcia had a multi-home run game uh, back in the second game of the season, and he's no longer with the White Sox because of injury. Uh, so it's been a while since the White Sox have seen Randy Dumbneck. And then on Wednesday, September 16th at 7.10 p.m. Central Time, this is a pretty big start for Lucas Giolito. It is a to be announced for the Minnesota Twins because Rich Hill is dealing with some injuries. Uh, so we'll find out who they are going to have face Lucas Giolito on the mound. But Jim, Giolito in two starts against the Twins in 2020, and he's dug the White Sox a hole early. The Twins were up 4 to nothing in the third inning, in his last start against him in Minneapolis before the White Sox came alive and help, uh, help to get to the victory, come from behind win, 8-5 to five in Minneapolis. Uh, but for me, Jim, I think this series could be split one game apiece before Gilito gets on the mound, and this is really time for Gilito to step up for himself and try to avoid another early disaster against the Twins and put the White Sox in position to win.
2: Yeah, hopefully uh, the work he did, you know, trying to visualize the first thing better, uh, you work on his bullpen designed to get off to a better start. will. Uh, I, I think this is the kind of start he had in mind in order to say, like, I can't afford to do this. You know, the games like this, opponents like this, and it'll be put to the test. But that's why I think that having the outing he did against uh, Detroit's where it just wasn't that sharp, um, two-pitch pitcher, maybe kind of a one-and-a-half pitch pitcher because even the changeup, wasn't what it normally was that maybe that was the wake-up call i needed in order to say like well i know what i was doing wrong my mechanics are going to fall out of whack occasionally you know just being a huge guy with long uh, levers and uh, long stride just there are gonna be some games where i'm not feeling it where nothing's lined up uh now i have video uh, of me looking bad now it's time to create some video of me looking good and so hopefully that's the kind of tune-up that he had uh, because we've seen that happen before where just things go wrong and he fixes it. So uh, that would be the start against the Tigers where something went wrong. So theoretically, he can get back on track here.
0: And then Thursday, September 17th, this is the getaway day start. It's at 1.10 p.m. Central Time. And for the Minnesota Twins, it's Kenta Meera against to be announced for the White Sox. But reports are that the White Sox are hopeful that this could be Dallas Keuchel. And uh, the White Sox have only seen Maeda once back on July 26th. He pitched well for the Twins. Five innings pitched, four hits, two earned runs, allowed a home run. But he had six strikeouts in one walk as the the White Sox uh, consistently could not get good contact against him. And Maeda has been great for the Twins, just like Keiko has been great for the White Sox this year. So that would be kind of an interesting story if they do face each other. These two free agent signings for these two these chief rivals in the American league central, both doing what each team has been asking of them and, uh, and made it his last start. And this was against Shane Bieber. He was outstanding. He pitched seven scoreless innings with seven strikeouts and two walks. So that's going to be a tough game for the white Sox on that Thursday to close it. And looking at the four games and now knowing the pitching problems, our show poll, I asked our listeners, Jim, how many games they think the white Sox can win this series and even though the White Sox have won 20 of their last 25 games they just came off a sweep against the Detroit Tigers I am a bit surprised on how conservative White Sox fans were with their uh, guess on how many wins they'll have against the Twins in this series 73% say that the White Sox will split this four game series against the Minnesota Twins what say you? How many wins do you think the White Sox will have against the Twins in this four-game series?
2: I think that's more or less where my mind is. One note is that uh, Maeda was a trade acquisition not a free agent, but yeah, oh, off right. ac- yeah, big, big, you know, they, they traded uh uh Bruce all, you know, just a kind of a bullpen arm and I think they're fine doing that. So, uh it's a big addition for them, but yeah, this the centerpiece I think for their uh off-season additions when it comes to pitching staffs, but yeah, I think there's reason to be conservative uh, or suppress enthusiasm, which is not surprising coming from me, but it's uh, just because of the right-handed nature of the Twins pitching staff. And, uh, you know, uh, Brios very good from the right side. Dobnak is, you know, he can be hit. He's just somebody who will get ground balls, will throw strikes, and up, uh, up to the White Sox to, you know, get out of that ground ball mode. You mentioned it with Jimenez having a high ground ball rate. Anderson can do it sometimes. Uh, Bray, you can get in those funks sometimes where he just tops balls. So uh, I, it will require more discipline or at least more thoughtfulness in terms of how they attack him, using the opposite field more, not trying to do too much with sinkers. Uh, we've seen the White Sox succeed sometimes, like they're not hopeless, but sometimes they get out of sorts and take some four to five innings to realize like nothing we've been doing is working and let's hope that we have plan B. Uh, and then you throw in Maeda, who's been very good this year, like possibly a Cy Young contender. He'll he'll probably get some votes if he can maintain this to the end. So three tough righties, or at least three righties who have a way of uh, maximizing some things the White Sox do poorly at the plate. So I can see why this is an uphill battle. Uh, the good news, I think, is that the White Sox pitching is relatively well lined up. Like Evan Marshall is not well rested, so... They'll be able to use him and Alex Calameo had it pretty easy. So uh, they'll be able to line up their bullpen pretty well, I think, uh to uh overcome like say like if they need to cover four innings in a game in a, in a close one. And, you know, the the you know, the starting pitching with Giolito, you know, there's a reason to believe in him, and Dane Dunning, I think, has shown no reason to be pessimistic yet. I think when you when you compare Cease and, and Dunning, I think Dunning's doing a better job of throwing quality strikes. Uh Cease has more stuff, which I think makes hitters more nervous or have to cheat more. But I think when it comes to executing, Dunning's been ahead. So if if we're talking about quality strikes being needed to beat the twins, he might be somebody in position to do that. So I I think uh, I wouldn't necessarily want to forecast doom. So I think a split seems like a good balance between the two.
0: Yeah, I got the White Sox and twins splitting. So the White Sox would still have a game lead in the American League Central, two games in hand. That's the key difference right now. the Twins have played two more games than the White Sox, and those two games are losses. So as soon as the White Sox make up those two games and they can win those two extra games, uh, then they could be as but as many as two games ahead against the Minnesota twins. Uh, so this is this is a, again a big series. If you are a White Sox fan that wants the team to win the American League Central. This is a crucial series. If you are a White Sox fan that's just happy that the team is going to finish above 500 and they're going to make the postseason and it doesn't really matter if they win the division or not because of the postseason setup and after the first round, they're all going to go into a bubble anyways in San Diego. So it doesn't matter if you have home field advantage or not. You're going to be playing out in California anyways well, then enjoy as far as the tense situations that there will be uh, over (laughs) the four games. Just be, uh, all I ask is if you are the fan in the later camp, uh, just be conscious of the fact that there are some fans that definitely want to see the team win the American League Central and uh, if you say that it doesn't matter, you will get on, you get under their skin and they will get mad at you and they will start fights with you on social media. But yeah. just, uh, just be open-minded about that. Yeah. We got
2: a question from as in rec Patreon for PO socks, but I think it's more applicable here. Just asking how we feel. Let me find the exact wording here. Uh, just to make sure I'm, I'm capturing the sentiment, right? Yeah. The question was, how should we celebrate the socks finally having a winning season under Rick Hahn?
0: I think you gotta be happy. Listen, for me, the, my critique of Rick Hahn over the years has been pretty critical. But he did what we have been clamoring for, Jim, in late November signing Yasmani Grandal and making that effort and then getting Dallas Keuchel and getting past as far as uh, the threshold of the largest free agent contract signings. They made a serious run at Zach Wheeler. Unfortunately, Wheeler wanted to stay on the East Coast, and he signed with Philadelphia. And that was a bit heartbreaking. I thought he had a very good off season. I thought he was a little bit lazy at the trade deadline. They still need another reliever. But I get it. If the clubhouse feels that they got the guys and they got the horses to get through, he's showing trust in them in this pandemic 60-game six, season. So I think... For once in his career as the GM of the Chicago White Sox, the one out of his eight year tenure, Rick Hunt is having a really good year as a GM, and maybe he is finally finding his rhythm. And uh, we'll see what this translates to in the upcoming seasons for the White Sox.
2: Yeah, like whether the White Sox become a destination for. Uh, discriminating free agents. You know, he's
0: got to use his negotiating tactics on his boss with Jerry Reinsdorf. I, I'm serious <laughs> about this. I I am yeah. concerned that Jerry's going to pull him into his office after this season, tell Rick, you did an excellent job given the circumstances, but here's the truth, Rick, we didn't have fans. So I don't have all these profits. So I can't, I can't have you increase payroll. So now Rick's got this entire new challenge that he's got to overcome In 2021. And that's going to make fans upset because, Hey, we're a winning ball club. Let's push all the chips in and Rick can't like that could be a legitimate situation. Mm And now then the tables have reversed. It'd be me defending Rick Khan, who over (laughs) the years has been incredibly critical of his work.
2: Yeah, I think for this year, I think the the critique for Han shifts to being like, well, you have to do it over 162 games. You know, 60 games is one thing. You know, that's less than half a season. Uh, the White Sox have had uh, 60 decent games under him before, so yeah, it's just not quite there yet. But for you know this season, there there is only 60 games. It is a lopsided schedule where they only face two divisions there's only so much they can prove and they're proving it like dallas keichel for the back uh, spasms had been delivering immediately yasmani grandal even though he's not necessarily the most fun to watch at times he's he's been yasmani grandal so the the big ticket free agent items like he's he's getting what he's paying for and he's also like these these free agent acquisitions are you know if you set aside maybe steve cshek you know they're more or less being who they're supposed to be and that's a that's a good sign for their pro scouting so i think for uh, the limited amount that the White Sox could show, they're showing it well enough. So, you know, that's, like you said, shifts to the offseason now and what he can do. But yeah, there's no reason to, I think, snipe right now just because, uh, you know, what more? You know, maybe they can play better against the Twins and the Indians and we'll see how these last two weeks go. But even then, it's still, you know, still a good season. It's still a lot of positive developments. And uh, given the weird circumstances, it's nice to you have all these you know, uh you know, mvp candidates and uh you know, good pitching stories no hitter uh you know, young guys stepping up from obscurity like all all these are great and uh, uh there are some things to worry about underneath but for time being it's uh as you mentioned a good off season has lent itself to a a good season uh as limited as it may be
0: and the focus now changes right our focus has mostly been is this foundation strong enough in 2020, we know the answer. Yes, the foundation is strong. But now the attention is going to be on the margins, right? You mentioned Steve Ciszek. Like, what is your ability as a general manager to find effective seventh inning, sixth inning relievers? Is Rick Renteria really the guy as the manager? And do you put all your faith in his decision-making during high-pressure situations or high-leverage situations in postseason games. That's where the focus is going to be driven now. We, we, he's done a very good job building a foundation for this ball club in which the expectation now is, yes, you will be a winning ball club and you will be contending for the American League Central. We'll see what he can do to help improve the team from the outside. But we have been in this position before. He had a pretty strong foundation in 2015 and 2016 and he didn't do so hot adding into the margin. So this will give him an opportunity to learn from past mistakes. Hopefully he will. Hopefully there's enough money for him to address that. And uh, the White Sox, as far as the players, they do their part and they uh, live up to yeah, expectations. I think the thing that helps,
2: quite... too, is that they came up, at least a lot of them came up together in the minors. So you don't have that whole personality clash where they're trying to... Yeah, exactly. you know, I guess they did a little bit with Keuchel and Grandall and such, like adding veterans who know how to win. But when it comes like the core guys, like the... There's enough of a core offensively, I think, that they didn't have the last time. that <laughs> They needed to supplement too much from the outside with all the personalities and with all the, you know, we need an energy guy. So here's Brett Laurie. We need a sage veteran. So here's Adam LaRoche. Like they're, they, they actually concentrate, like the whole emphasis on leadership was like getting good players who were also leaders, not getting leaders who might be passable. So I think that's where the, uh, the difference is between supplementing this core and supplementing the last one. And there's, there's enough bodies there to where they can, they don't have to spread themselves thin trying to patch, uh, patch over so many, uh, liable positions.
0: And I hope, I hope for Rick's sake, he's happy with the job that he's done. I know that he wants more and I know that he would more, he wants more than anything to have that parade and shove it into our faces thinking this rebuild was never going to work a couple of years ago. I know he would love to have that opportunity, but for everything that he worked on in this off season, And then to all of a sudden not have a season until late July and you're only going to get 60 games when you had this grand planned, all set up and ready to go. And we were halfway through spring training and for everything to still work out. And the fact the team is 30 and 16 at this point, and even though they are a bit undermanned and they may not have had the resources of the trade deadline to get anyone significant to help them out that they're still in a position and still playing well enough to win the American League Central. And I I hope that he's happy with that and that uh, he can finally get off the schneid and he finally has a winning record uh, on his resume to snap the seventh straight losing season. So I, I, I hope he's happy. He should be. He's done a good job this season, and hopefully we'll see what he can do moving forward in 2021 and beyond. But where the White Sox are right now is really all depending on the players that are in that clubhouse and Rick Renteria to carry him to the end, whatever end that may be. But speaking of questions for us, you all there's we got a lot of questions this week for PO Sox. So let's start answering them next in PO Sox.
1: At ADP, we understand the importance of building the right team and offer the data insights to help. Just as importantly, our AI technology helps you pay the team accurately. Grow stronger with ADP. HR, talent, time, and payroll.
0: You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox. We you submitted your questions to us via Twitter by tweeting to us at Sox Machine or helping support the site and the show by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash Machine. And again, we had a lot of questions this week in PO Socks, so let's go ahead and start answering some of them. And uh, Jim, the first question that we got here comes from Mark Sambor. And Mark is asking, what place do you think the White Sox would be in if they played in each of the other five divisions?
2: Well, you know, looking at the season, and especially like a weird season like the Yankees, where they uh, started hot, bottomed out, and now they seem like they're back on a roll. If you were to, you know, restart the season, re, uh, I guess, you know, reshuffle the rosters to be like injury-free and such, uh, you know, how would you assess these teams? And I'm, I guess, I'm looking at it that way versus how you know an exact uh, duplicate of the season and just plugging the White Sox into a division. But looking at it, it just seems like the only teams I think the White Sox would be worse than or have a hard time beating head-to-head are Tampa Bay, Minnesota, um, and and the Dodgers. I think that's about it. I think the the Braves maybe would be under different circumstances. They've had so many injuries that it's hard to tell <laughs> just exactly how much of that is bad luck versus just poor planning or at least uh, not realizing a fault line. but. Uh, just I think those teams, the Twins, the Rays, the Do- Dodgers, are just either deep enough, or uh, their their roster is uh, just uh, equipped the right way, or their leadership is smart enough, or just however you put it, they're just they have advantages that they can press on the White Sox to get them to break. And uh, uh, the the one thing about the NL West too is that the Padres are now just two games behind the Dodgers, so maybe the Dodgers are or the Padres are in that echelon too, to where they'd be a bit too uh scarier or, or too much you know to handle head to head but um i i think the dodgers or the the padres and the white Sox are basically on the same track we've been talking about it for a while i think uh they're they're kind of uh, mirror images of each other um for better or for worse in each division but or each league but uh those are the only two teams i think and, and maybe the yankees if they're fully healthy they would be another team that's too much to handle but when you see how many of their injuries, especially like Aaron Judge, who might be like hurt more often than usual, um, yeah, it's hard to tell just whether they just might have yeah, you know, their youth has uh I, I guess made it a bit easy to be optimistic about their team health, but maybe a, a couple of guys are getting hurt enough to where you just wonder, you know, if they're gonna have to have some adjustments later on to their roster.
0: I mean, if we're talking about right now though, in the present, mm-hmm. you took the White Sox, I, I think they would be second in the American League East. I think they would be second in the American League West because Oakland was a really good team um, before Matt Chapman got hurt. In the National League East, I would say they they would be leading. I, I have confidence the White Sox would be leading the East and the Central. The West, I would probably put them in third behind San Diego and the Dodgers. That's the one division where I don't think the White Sox would be in the top two right now, as is. Hmm. I like San Diego. I I think San Diego has an advantage over the White Sox at the moment, and that's the starting pitching advantage because they traded for, I don't know, like 13 guys at the trade deadline um, (laughs) to to help out with the roster. And, And speaking as far as the Padres and the Dodgers, so yeah, the Padres are two games back at the Dodgers. While the White Sox and Twins are playing, so are the Dodgers and Padres. This is a great week. For Major League Baseball to have these two critical series between chief rivals in their divisions face each other, uh, which makes things really exciting. So White Sox Twins, Dodgers Padres, uh, just great. Especially the Dodgers and Padres would be the nightcap uh, after. Yeah, the it's, Sox it's, it's great for
2: MLB uh, MLB TV subscribers watch one game and then flip to the other.
0: Exactly, exactly. But that's kind of how I feel on where the White Sox would be in each division as is.
2: Yeah, I think the Padres are scary just because I'm looking at their second in baseball and runs and they play in Petco.
0: They have made Petco look small, Jim.
2: Yeah, that's, that's I think what's scary. Um, you know, put them in a hitter-friendly park and I don't know what they would do.
0: Right. It just, in the way that the National League postseason playoff is looking, if the Padres can't get the job done, or it doesn't matter if they don't get the job done, either the Dodgers or the Padres are going to be the one or four seed. That's just how it, that's the way it's going to be. So if they, if they both win their first round, they're going to face each other in a five game series. And the winner of that five game series is going to move on to the National League Central and play maybe the winner between the Braves and Cubs. That's kind of how it's looking at, at the moment. So if you're a Cubs fan, you got to feel great. Because you may not have to face either of those teams until the National League Championship Series. And then you might be a little bit hopeful that perhaps some magic could happen and you can make it into the World Series before facing uh, one of those two teams that I think are clearly stronger than you. Whereas in the American League, if the White Sox can find a way to hold on and be the number one seed, they still may have to face the Minnesota Twins in that second round, right? Right. And that's kind of where I'm with you, Jim. In a five-game series against the Twins, I'd have to unfortunately say that, yeah, I would expect the Twins to win that series and move on to the American League Championship Series. Unless the Yankees beat the White Sox in the first round, then the Yankees are going to beat the Twins, no matter how many games they're in that playoff, Uh, (laughs) and then go on into the next round. But that's kind of how I feel right now and where the White Sox would be in the other divisions. Yep, yeah, but
2: I mean, looking at the standings, the White Sox are first in run differential in the American League, seventy-seven ahead.
0: Yeah, I mean it's and, legit. And part of
2: that's yeah, I mean part of it's the 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 bum sling they've done, but. What are you going to do? That's the schedule. Well, so. You're
0: already hearing chirping from Twins fans. Like, well, the teams that they're beat are not going to the postseason while well, we're 14 and six against teams above 500. Yes, you should applaud yourself for that. But what the heck happened in the games against Kansas City and Detroit when you got swept in that series? Yeah. Like, we don't have an answer for that. Like, you might be playing well now because Donaldson and Buxton are in the lineup. But we know that, that they are fragile. That at any moment, they could end up right back on the injured list. And if they go back on the injured list, are the Twins that much weaker again? Are they the Twins team that struggles against the Royals and the Tigers? But now you're not facing the Royals and Tigers anymore. That, that's kind of how I wonder about the Twins. Like Right now, the White Sox are facing a very strong Twins team. And uh, we'll see if they can uh, live up to the challenge. But there's been moments in this season the Twins have looked pretty fragile. But so has every team in the American League this year. And yep. that's why the White Sox are currently the number one seed because they have been stronger than the other teams more often than not so far through the first 46 games. But
2: And they've been probably better than anybody at leveraging their strongest moments against the weakest teams.
0: Exactly. That's what you got to do, though. That's that, yep. In the regular season, that's what you got to do. These tests upcoming are going to be previews of what will happen in the postseason, which is great because we haven't talked about a postseason White Sox team in 12 years, Mark. But thank you so much for your question. On to another Mark, Mark Hope. And Mark is asking, in 2012, with 14 games to go, the White Sox were up on the Detroit Tigers by two games and proceeded to go 4-10 and the rest of the way. And lost the division by three games. Thank you so much for that memory. Mark, Mark continues to write, Jim, given that they're a virtual lock to make the playoffs in 2020, the dynamic is a little different than 2012, but this year feels different to me. Am I setting myself up for emotional trauma, or is there a different vibe to this stretch run than in 2012? There's a different
2: vibe. I think you know it could end the same way, where the White Sox just look overmatched, or at least uh, like you know they're they're finally picking on somebody their own size and 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 not faring nearly as well, and we're not enjoying it as much. But when I remember that 2012 team, it just it was kind of a lopsided roster, and you had a a, a lot of guys over 30, and you had like the last days of Kevin Euclid as a regular. And uh, you had Orlando Hudson getting way too many plate appearances, and he had uh, you know the pitching hanging on by a thread, like you know beyond the the top three starters, and it was just uh, not great. And in Francisco Liriano, it came in. You know, I'm looking at the roster now, just he was brought in to be a patch, and he wasn't. So the whole enterprise, I think, was like held together by duct tape. You know, those last two weeks, and you could kind of see it. The risk of it falling apart and Robin Ventura, you know, and his you know, going from the couch to a manager's chair and, and looking completely overwhelmed by September baseball and and, and you know, just foreshadowing the rest of his White Sox managerial career. Uh that was I think what lent uh or or what gave it a much darker vibe. I think this time around, you know, the, the postseason, you know, it being basically a lock at this point and seating not really mattering. Since home field advantage doesn't seem to matter as much, although some teams are better at it than others. Um it's it's it gives you a nice kind of safety net where you can get into this, you can feel it's important. Like I think there are reasons to think like it's important for the White Sox to show up against good right-handed pitching that the twins have. Like there's reason to get invested in it, there's reason to get frustrated if things don't go well, there's reason to celebrate if the White Sox rock Barrios or Maeda and split the series are better. There's reason to feel great about that. And so I think there's reasons to have the emotions flow if you want them to. If you want to be invested in this the way you would be in a normal season where uh, there is no safety net. But I think at the same time, you know, there's, you know, beyond there being eight playoff seeds this year and the White Sox are already basically locking one in. Uh, there's the idea that just so many of these players are young and figuring it out. Um, you know, I'm looking at that roster of the 2012 and Pierzynski, Canerco, Ramirez, uh, Rios and Dunn and Euclid, all over 30. You know, and Diaz was 28. So you basically had two guys, Beckham and Vicieto, who were in their primes and neither of them were, you know, they might have already been past their primes at that point. So, uh, <laughs> like, the you know, just... Yeah, the White Sox weren't like, uh, that year they're clinging on to something and hoping that they just have enough to get some postseason revenue and 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 uh, beef up the team next year. And the way they played in 2013 showed just how it unraveled and how thin they were. But I think this year just they're so deep with young players. And even though their pitching staff is beat up, you can still see the potential for next season, You know, even if they don't add a starter. I hope they do, or at least have some plan for a backup in case Copac isn't there. But, you know, you can at least see the depth uh, and the young depth all around and the cost-controlled depth. So there's a lot more going to it to where even if they go, uh, you know, we had that kind of finish that they had in 2012, it's not going to feel like that's foreshadowing something a lot darker, like a 99-loss season like they had in 2013. They just seem too deep for that. So I'm feeling good about this overall, even if they just... Even if this, uh, you know, the series against the Twins and maybe against the Indians shows that they still need to figure out something against right-handed pitching.
0: My season prediction, Mark, was 34-26 and 26 for the White Sox. They are currently 30-16. and 16. If they go 4-10 and 10 in these last 14 games of the season and they finish 34-26, I guess I'd be a little disappointed, but that's what I thought they would be. Uh, at the beginning of the season, I thought that would be a really good season, and that would still be a really good season. My best case scenario for the White Sox was 36-24, and 24, and that would be the White Sox finishing 6-8 and eight in these last 14 games against the Twins, the Reds, the Indians, and the Cubs. I think that's realistic. I also think it's realistic they could split those games and finish 7-7. Seven and seven. May creep some doubt for White Sox fans because again, in the last 25 games, they've only seen five losses. So to see seven losses over the last in the last 14 games of the season uh, would be a bit of a wake-up call. But I think the White Sox could finish the season 36 or 37 wins, and uh, that will have. I think I think we're going to see a different vibe, Mark. I agree with Jim. I'm a little bit more optimistic on how the White Sox can uh, hold their ground in these last 14 games, especially those games against Cleveland. I, I, I'm confident in those games. Not sure why, but I just I feel <laughs> I feel more confident right now in the White Sox' chances to win those games uh, against Cleveland.
2: Maybe, maybe it's Cleveland six losses in a row.
0: Oh, that's it. That's it, yeah. <laughs> and that Cincinnati is bad. Uh, that road trip in Ohio, I think the White Sox are going to play better than a lot of people think. That's seven games. I wouldn't be surprised if they go five and two against the Reds and the Indians. And, uh, then you're really cooking. What happens against the Cubs? Whatever. <laughs> I think both teams, <laughs> both teams will have their postseason spots locked up and they're more concentrated on, uh, getting starters lined up for the postseason. And we may just see rookies pitching those games, but Mark, I, I hope the white Sox don't go four and 10 and I, but I agree with Jim. They do go four and 10. It's a, It is a different vibe because when the White Sox did in 2012 and they were 500, what, after the first 50 games of 2013, there was still hope that they could contend, but man, it it turned ugly and it turned ugly for a long time. And uh, I don't think that's going to be the case this time around for the White Sox, which is good. But Mark, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Lou Powell, and this is pretty straightforward. Lou's asking, Jim, most promising White Sox rookie class since? 1990,
2: I would say Frank Thomas, Robin Ventura, Alex Fernandez, all coming that in. That's pretty good. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think that's kind of what you're looking at. I'm, I looked at some other ones, especially you know guys with their rookie um, you know, rookie eligibility still intact. I mean, 2013 was Jose Abreu and Marcus Semyon, knowing what we know now about Semyon. That would be a lot more impressive. But at the time, it was a Brayu and Semyon was an interesting bench player, or could be a second baseman if they were willing to give him the playing time, but they instead gave uh, Paul Konerko his retirement farewell. And so Semyon didn't get that ability, but, you know, oh well. Uh, with 1998, mm-hmm. you, had, uh, you had Magli Ordonez and Mike Cameron and Mike Caruso, and that, that was impressive at the time because Caruso finished higher than Mags in the AL Rookie of the Year voting, but it was... Crusoe was the case where I think knowing what we know now about what stats are um, the ones you want to look at <laughs> and uh, knowing things about like on base percentage, walk rates, uh, you know, ground ball rates, everything like that, that uh, we would have seen that uh, Caruso was really just on borrowed time, even if he was a rookie. So that one blew up. And then you had 2000 where you had Burley and Garland and Creedy, and that was Pretty good, although, like, Creedy took a while to get it going, so he wasn't quite that, uh, you know, that promising early on. And, uh, and and same thing with Garland, took a while to get going. Burley hit the ground running, basically. Like, you know, he uh, w- was uh, shifted between the bullpen and the rotation and such, so he wasn't quite Mark Burley until next year, but that was, you know, name-wise pretty good. But when you look at, like, the instant impact and the that their prospect rankings entering the season and just what they've been able to deliver so far with uh, Robert and Magical and and what Dunning's doing so far is is a pretty good third and uh, you know, I, I think that you gotta like that basically overall and you have to go back to 1990 where you had Thomas and uh, ventura and fernandez where he had a hall of famer a hall of uh very good yeah you know, very good you know it might have been a hall of famer maybe if he didn't have the ankle injury which kind of uh you know put his career on a slightly different course And then fernandez who was a very good pitcher before his uh i think it was his shoulder gave out so uh yeah no complaints about any of those guys
0: and don't forget about the rookie performance as well from cody hoyer and matt foster yeah as well yep
2: so they've had a lot of good like supplemental rookie performances so they've they've had a lot of depth to it that i think other rookie classes haven't had
0: that's a good point that's a great question lou and
2: yeah I, and i think i think it's hard to tell like it's a hard season to compare to other ones just because the nature of the season mm-hmm. lends itself to a lot more auditions just because <laughs> of all the injuries and all the uh you know 28 man rosters and such like rosters being bigger than ever before so more rookies are getting the chance in one year than ever before. So I think that's why this might be a little bit more impre- Like it's a little bit artificial how impressive it is, but it's still impressive.
0: But I enjoy that. I like yeah. the fact that Jonathan Stever was forced to make a start because the White Sox don't have anybody else. We would have not, if this was a normal season, there's no way in hell we would have seen Jonathan Stever make a start for the 2020 White Sox. If we didn't have the pandemic shortening the season to 60 games.
2: Yeah, I like the interviews with the family, too. I, I find that to be, uh, you know, during the game, they did it with Birdie, they they did it with Stever. Um, just, you know, normally they would send Chuck Garfine down to, you know, kneel next to the the family in the seats and, and talk to him about it. But uh, with that not possible, I do like that they're bringing that dynamic into it because I think it's pretty pretty fun watching them and seeing the nerves there even if it's not quite the same you know usually you see in the stands you see their nerves and you see their eyes following it and, and half listening to chuck <laughs> but uh this time around's a bit different but still enjoyable i'm glad they're doing that even though it might be awkward at times and might be like uh you know with the zoom call like doing a split screen and taking up a bit too much i've seen some complaints about it but i think it's still an important thing to have it's still you know, it's a very human part of the game, and it's nice to see the White Sox and, and Benetti and Stone and and, and the uh, NBC Sports Chicago team uh, still paying attention to it.
0: Well, Lou, thank you so much for your question. It was an excellent question. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions for us this week in PO Sox. If you have a question or topic that you would like us to answer to future episode of the Sox Machine podcast, again, follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. And you could also help support us at patreoncom Machine, which we have a couple of marketing items uh, for those that do support us on Patreon. As always, thank you guys so much for your support. For those that are just discovering this show on Patreon, what you receive with your support at at least two dollars a month, you get an ad-free version of the podcast, so no ads. Placed in the episodes. Plus, there are other levels of support that you can earn uh, socks, machine, swag, including our new coffee mugs. And uh, we still have inventory, I assume, right, Jim? We haven't sold out on the coffee mugs? Correct. Excellent. So that's the $10 tier. And plus, our Patreon supporters get the opportunity for extra content with each podcast in which Jim and I answer additional P.O. Sox questions and our, P- our Patreon supporters also get the opportunity to ask questions when we have guests that they get to hear those answers only on the Patreon version of the show. So again, if you just discovered the show and you enjoy it and you want an ad free version of the show and you want more content, go to patreon.com slash socks Machine to sign up. Uh, we also have the socks Machine Cog shirts for sale on the website. It's $25 includes shipping. We added more inventory as well. So there are mediums and larges in stock and, uh, Again, you can go to socksmachine.com and you can order the new shirts. You can even add a swag pack, in which the swag pack now includes coasters. So we got a new shipment of coasters, uh, with the cog wheel that will add in along with your shirts and stickers and buttons, so you have more socks machine swag. So that's another opportunity for everyone that's listening uh, to support our work. We have the Patreon site, and now you can buy stuff on SoxMachine.com. And we really do appreciate everyone's support throughout the 2020 season. You guys have been wonderful to us, reading and listening to everything that we have been producing. And again, with the White Sox now going to at least have a 500 record, Jim and I are already discussing postseason plans uh, so we'll have some future announcements on how we're going to be covering White Sox postseason games. I know we are scared, nervous, and excited at the same time, just like you guys as well. Uh, it'll be fun.
2: Also, uh, and also new uh, exclusive written content coming tomorrow on the site.
0: Oh, awesome.
2: So wanted to add that in there Excellent.
0: as well. So, so much you get for supporting us at Patreon. So again, go to patreon.com slash Machine and sign up today. And that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. If you just discovered the show, you can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts, now including Radio.com and the Radio.com app. And Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening.
1: Your business may be small, but you've got big goals. Brother Laser Printers can help you succeed, no matter the space, task, or budget. From crisp black and white to vivid full color, our printers offer affordable quality you can trust. Plus, fast printing and high page yields make them ideal for home offices and shared workspaces. It's no wonder Brother is the number one retail brand in laser printer unit sales in the U.S. With Brother at your side, go from small to do it all. Shop now at brother-usa.com laser.